to the Communication Studies Podcast. My name is Justin Young. I'm a faculty member here in the School of Communication Studies at Southern Illinois University, Carbondale. And my guest this week is Shelby Swafford. Hello, Shelby. Hi, Justin. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. Um, if you haven't listened to the podcast before, this is a podcast all about communication um, and all the different ways that it can um, manifest itself in our lives. Everything from things we think about like media, but also things like interpersonal communication, but also how it affects different areas outside of traditional communication. And one of the things that we try to do in this podcast is make it very accessible to people who maybe aren't in academia. So you'll hear us at points try to explain concepts that maybe you're not as familiar with and everything, because we really want this to be as accessible and inclusive as possible. All right, so let me introduce my guest a little bit here. Uh, Shelby is a doctoral student here in the School of Communication Studies, and your current status is you're working on your dissertation? Yes. yes. So you are technically ABD? Yes, um, I am ABD as of um, March. Okay, congratulations. Thank you. So if you haven't heard that term before, ABD is all but dissertation, so... Um, she's in the final <laughs> final lag of uh, of this journey of hers, but it's the hardest leg of the journey, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. Home stretch is the hardest. <laughs> well, we all wish you well in finishing that dissertation and everything. Thank you. So to start off, Shelby, could you tell us a little bit about your background, where you're from and everything, and how maybe you got into studying communication just in general? Yeah, absolutely. So I am originally from Florida, uh, the Panhandle of Florida in Fort Walton Beach, a small, smallish beach town. Um, eventually, I made my way down to Tampa, where I attended USF for college for my bachelor's degree. Um, and initially, I started as an English major. Um, and I, I knew I wanted to write. I knew I wanted to read. Um, but then I looked and I saw that they required a playwriting class, which is kind of ironic that this is what made me switch. Um, <laughs> they, they required a playwriting class, and I said, I'm never going to do that. And I switched to communication studies. Um, I didn't really know what it was, but the classes I took so far in my general eds uh, really excited me about it. It seemed like you could study almost anything mm -hmm. through a communication lens. So... I became a um, communication major at USF. I graduated from there in 2014 with my BA in relational communication. Mm -hmm. um, and then I just so happened to take classes with some of our alumni here, um, Keith Berry, and um, he, he encouraged me to look at SIU for graduate school as, long, as well as some other um, instructors I had at the time. Uh, Our alumni always out there recruiting for always, us? Always, always. Um, Keith said, I think you'd be really good there. Um, and lo and behold, eight years later, I stayed for my master's and PhD. Um, Carbondale is, is my home. Um, so so uh, I've got to ask, like, you said the playwriting class scared you away from the English major, and then now here you are doing performance studies. Yeah. So... How do you make that transition <laughs> to where this is the scariest thing in the world to this is your, uh, you know, this is your form of expression? Um, it, SIU and the Kleinau and our professors here and grad students here who did performance studies really just, 
brought me in. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, I, I got here and I, I knew that I wanted to um, do research that was more creative, that was more accessible, um, that really focused on storytelling. And I started looking at all the folks in performance studies and I said, that's what I want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I was really, really lucky to have um, friends and colleagues and professors who sort of welcomed me into performance studies and said, you don't have stage experience, but you have something valuable to offer. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's in a lot of ways, it was SIU. It was it was coming to this program and seeing the amazing work being done on that Kleinau stage and going, I want to do that. That looks amazing. Can you single out uh, a a piece or maybe a moment that really like galvanized you in that direction. Um, in terms of of, of watching performance, um, I, I I don't remember what year it was, but it was sometime early in my masters, um, and I, I'm watching all of this performance stuff. The first show I saw was Jason Hedrick's um, uh, the final chapter of Nick Carter, which was the sort of um, surrealist play um, about media and, and earworms, um, <laughs> among other things. And I, I earworms just, in the term of like a song. Mm-hmm. Okay. So like yeah. the catchy song that yeah. you can't get out of your head, catchy song that you can't get out of your head. Um, maybe also a little literal earworm in this, in this context. <laughs> um, and I just remember thinking how, how cool it was watching my friends sort of transform on stage mm-hmm. into these characters to, to bring these ideas to life. Um, I also remember watching, um, watching a couple of solo performances. The first solo performance I saw of Craig Gingrich Philbrook, who is one of our professors here, um, was in a spotlight hour, faculty spotlight hour my first year. And I just remember thinking, oh my God, like that is someone who is completely in their element mm-hmm. um, and who is just channeling an energy that I wanted to be able to tap into somehow, some way. The energy of, of the stage, of that relationship with the audience, of telling a story in a completely sort of raw, open way, something so intimate but so public. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it was sort of cumulative um, over over those first two years in my master's, really watching people um, get up on that stage and transform and and bring research to folks in a way that I had never seen research brought to folks before. That's really interesting. Using the term transform, right? Like the idea of, of appearing on stage being a, a transformative experience, that act of of performing or acting of being a transformative experience um, is really interesting. I think probably what appeals to a lot of our students in performance studies, right? Yeah, I would say so. Um, when, I, when I taught our performing cultures class, CMST 201, a couple of years ago, uh, my students were just so ready to just jump in to this thing that they had never really heard of or, or seen before, right? Because it's, mm-hmm. not, it's not theater in the traditional sense, right? It's, it's sort of much more pared down. There's not big sets. A lot of it can be solo work, um, just a, a person on a stage or in a classroom with a block. 
So um, maybe explain to us what is the difference between performance studies and what I think probably most people traditionally think of as theater. Right. Um, so this is a, a big question with lots and lots of different answers, <laughs> and people would answer it different ways. But Well, maybe give us your answer, and yeah. when we have other guests, we'll let them give <laughs> their version. Um, so as, as, as I understand it, um, performance studies really comes out of the communication studies discipline, but also has, has a leg in theater as well. So there's sort of different, um, different ways of doing performance studies. We here at SIU are really um, a part of the, the communication studies tradition of performance studies. And what that means is that our roots, um, especially here at SIU, actually trace back to what's called oral interpretation, um, the performance of literature. Mm-hmm. So um, the idea was that we learn more um, about culture, about literature, about ourselves by performing the literature than we do simply reading it, by embodying it, by, okay. by, by, by memorizing it, by putting it on our bodies, figuring out a way to translate that um, to people as art, right? And when you use the term literature, you mean that fairly broadly, not necessarily just novels or short stories, which I think is what most people think of when they hear the term literature. Yeah, So yeah. this is nonfiction and essays and those sorts of uh, other formats as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there were sort of some, a lot of, a lot of conversations in the, the early days of the discipline when we were still oral interpretation mm-hmm. um, about what counts as literature and really that expansion into... Well, if we count nonfiction, um, why not memoir? Right. Why not personal stories? Right. So that sort of explosion into what do we mean by literature into into text broadly um, is where we come to performance studies, and the the difference there is, you know, our roots are are in that performance of literature. Um, we we do more paired back, experimental, quote-unquote, poor theater. Mm-hmm. Um, so we don't have a bunch of money to build big sets, to have big casts, to have fancy musicals with, you know, multiple directors and stagehands and, and those sorts of things. We're much more paired back. Um, and the idea is that we can sort of use, use our imaginations to use something as simple as a block. Mm-hmm. And turn it into a million different things, um, in 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 the space of a performance. For those who haven't seen a show here or seen something that might be labeled performance studies previously, um, you know the the thing I think of is like a black box theater, mm-hmm. right? If you've ever seen a show in a black box theater where it doesn't have the sets, it may have a few props, but it's people out there just acting, and like you're really having to get enveloped in that, right? Yes. But, um, but this may not even be a traditional story in the way that we think of it, right? A, a narrative um, uh, play that we would think of. Yes. So it may be more a personal essay or something that you're performing. Yeah, absolutely. They don't have to be a traditional um, play structure. Mm-hmm. Um, they, we have had performances that maybe do take on that, that quality a little bit more, but yeah, they can absolutely be personal stories, they can be surrealist narratives. We've had installation performances where folks come in and, and walk around and see the performers doing different things in different spaces. So mm-hmm. 
um, there's a lot of freedom in what we mean when we say performance. Great. Um, when you, so I want to get back to the performing cultures class because I think that sounds really interesting. You know, just the title of it sounds really interesting, yeah. kind of what you were talking about. So, what, so what, what sort of class is that? What goes on in a performing cultures class? Well, it is um, by far one of my favorite classes um, that I've gotten to teach during my time at SIU. Um, so students in that class do a variety of different performances, um, and they are based in literature. So going back to our roots of performing literature, so students perform a poem, a short story, and then a compiled script. Um, and throughout the semester, they, they choose those texts based off of cultural location. So um, choose a poem from, that is written from the perspective of a culture to which you belong. Mm -hmm. um, now choose a short story that's written from the perspective of someone who belongs to a culture that you don't belong. So how do we connect across difference? How do we, how do we perform that difference um, in a way that helps us... Um, understand and and respect that difference and when you use the term culture there um, sort of define for us like what that means in that context for that class or you know culture i think most people think of uh, racial or ethnic right um or is that in that context also meaning you know i hey i'm I'm in a Greek organization and that has its own culture or I'm, you know, I'm a football player and that has its own culture. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's fairly broad and left open to interpretation in a lot of ways. I would say that it's sort of connected to cultural identification, right? It, in that um, maybe my cultural location um, might be one way of thinking about that. So that would be Identity markers, so race, ethnicity, gender, sexuality, uh, class background, education background, religion, mm -hmm. those sorts of things. But we can also think about it sort of on that more um, micro level. Mm -hmm. um, so culture, you might think of it as culture at SIU, mm -hmm. right? Or, yeah, the culture of Greek organizations and things like that. Um, most of the texts that we have are... They're, they, they come out of a um, compiled literature anthology. So there are texts from authors from all around the world um, in that book. So, so a lot of folks will interpret that um, based off of the text that they, they have in front of them. Mm -hmm. um, so that sort of helps them think about culture in this sort of, um, in this sort of way we talk about it as shaping our identities. Great. Um, well, we do want to talk more about performance studies, but before we get to that, I, I did want to talk about, you taught a course that I think sounds really interesting, uh, Multicultural Perspectives of Women, Gender, and Sexuality. Yeah. And you taught that as part of the, the WIGS program, which is Women, Gender, and Sexuality Studies, um, yes. which is a um, not a full major here, but is a program that you can take classes and get a certificate uh, SIU. So tell us a little bit about the Multicultural Perspectives course for that. That is um, an awesome class that students get to um, really, really dive into ideas about gender and sexuality and how they relate to other facets of our identity and our lives and our experiences um, in, a, in a really 
in a deeper way than, than we do in just everyday life. Mm-hmm. So um, we spend a lot of time talking about the social construction of gender, um, how we create our own ideas of what gender means and then in, enact them or choose not to enact them. Could you give us an example of that? Yeah. What does that mean when you talk about constructing our idea of gender? So I think one of the classic examples is to think about children. Um, and specifically, let's, let's use children's clothing or children's toys, mm-hmm. right? So from a very young age, um, we are brought into an idea of gender. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is um, if you are assigned female at birth, what that means in our culture right now in this day and age is often pink and princesses and baby dolls and um, easy bake ovens and kitchen sets. And if you're assigned male at birth, that means blue and trucks and superheroes and... G.I. Joe. G.I. Joe, exactly. Um, and, And the idea behind that is that while while that might just seem totally natural and normal and neutral um, and necessary to, to borrow the four ends from from um, a professor Kristen Langelier in our field um, while it may appear that way on the surface it actually shapes a lot about our culture and our society mm-hmm. right um, so that this idea that a boy means one thing and girl means another thing also shapes our ideas about sexuality and family, what families can look like or should look like, mm. um, and what, what people should do. So the idea culturally that we've had for how many, however many years now, a long time, that women are natural caretakers, that, right. that they're the ones who are nurturing and should, should raise the children and be home with the children, um, that's a constructed idea of gender. Um, that really traces back to when we're when we're born um, and, and before that. Um, and, and that really ties into career opportunities as well yes. traditionally because we've had women as um, certainly as our elementary school teachers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that was traditionally seen only as a woman's job, nursing, you know, really jobs about caretaking, yes. like you're saying. Yes, exactly. Um, and, and that becomes harmful in multiple ways, right? Because then we don't see women as being able to be um, professors or CEOs or doctors or scientists or whatever. Mm-hmm. And also, we, we can't allow men to be elementary school teachers, right? There's, there's a stigma against that mm-hmm. as well. Um, so it really, it, our, our ideas of gender, as we construct them as a culture, really are, are those constructions are meant to be limiting, meant to be restricting, um, to... to to keep our ideas sort of in these clean, neat boxes when when in reality we all know that it's not that simple. Sure. How do students respond to that? Because just speaking from personal experience, you know, that's something that often is touched on in my classes but isn't the main focus of a class. Um, you know, that can sometimes be um, uncomfortable mm-hmm. for students to challenge, you know, something that, like you said, it's something that's been ingrained in them from the earliest of their age, you know, from the moment they were born and they were wrapped in a pink or blue blanket. <laughs> Do you suddenly have something like that challenged? And, you know, it's not even that, con- you know, to me, it doesn't even feel like that confrontational of an idea. The idea that 
yeah, you can put that little boy in a pink blanket. It'll be okay. Yeah. Um, that seems sort of a ridiculous conversation to have, but it can feel extremely challenging if this is the first time you're being approached with it. So how do students react to an entire semester of that? <laughs> generally, generally what I found is that my, my students craved those conversations. They might not have known it at first. Mm-hmm. It might have been a little bit uncomfortable at first. And I told them on the first day, it might be uncomfortable to talk about some of this stuff. Um, we're going to talk about stuff that you might not have thought about in, in a way to challenge it. We are going to talk about sex and sexuality. We're going to talk about uh, race. We're going to talk about class. We're going to talk about how all these things affect each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and if I tell them that on day one and they know going into it, we're going to have these conversations, I've usually found that they, they go with me. They go with me on that. And they, I think in our culture, because we, because we don't talk about those things, what I find is that, is that students are often really wanting an outlet to talk about them. Mm -hmm. Um, And we end up spending a lot of time talking about how these concepts work and affect our everyday lives, our experiences, our memories, um, our relationships, right? I've, I've had students who've, you know, taken that information back to their significant other or their mother or their aunt or their brother or their sister. Mm -hmm. um, And then come to me and say, it didn't go so well, but I'm really trying. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and, and by, by and large, you know, of course, I've had moments where, where students are really uncomfortable, but, but what I found is that if we, if we open up the floor and say, let's just have the conversation, there's, there's, we're not looking for a right answer here. We're looking to talk about these things and see what our experiences are with them um, and, then, and then how that fits into these sort of macro systems that seem so much bigger than us. And I think that overall, there They've always seemed really hungry mm-hmm. to learn that language, to be able to put to their own experiences. That's great. Um, all right. I, I do want to move on and talk about your research and everything. Yeah. I think we could talk about maybe that class <laughs> <laughs> individually for the entire hour, but I do want to talk about your research. Um, and so your research has come, my understanding, in a few different ways. So obviously through performance in, at the Klein now and everything with shows that you have written and directed or co-directed. Um, but it's also been through some panel discussions and papers and everything that you wrote. Mm-hmm. Um, one of those being uh, to be a mother, a feminist performative autoethnography <laughs> of abortion. Uh, wow, that is a tongue twister <laughs> trying to get that all out. And I so one thing I, I do want to point out is that you do have the M in mother in parentheses yes. so that you have um, you have the other of mother kind of set aside and yes. everything. So uh, I, I assume that is talking about the concept of the other. Mm-hmm. Um, could you explain that for, for us first and then we'll talk more about the piece? Yeah, absolutely. So um, what I'm... What I'm looking at in that piece is, is our concept of sort of compulsory motherhood, um, particularly for, for bodies that are assigned female at birth, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so because I'm talking about this complicated relationship with motherhood, specifically through my experience of abortion, um, I really wanted to, to, to highlight that otherness um, that, that sort of happens in this construction of womanhood equals motherhood. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and if you, if you choose, if you actively choose not to be a mother um, as a woman, as someone who is assigned female at birth, um, then you are, then you're doing it wrong. Right. Then you're doing it wrong. Um, you're, you're, you're breaking the scripts. You are not following the rules. Um, you're not fulfilling your destiny, all of those sort of things. So this idea of othering in this conversation of, of motherhood is really about sort of how we, how we construct womanhood around the idea of motherhood and who does not fit into that. Yeah, so you talk about choosing not to have children, but then, of course, there are also the women who simply can't, can't. have children, exactly. right? And they're often, um, you know, they're often treated the same way, mm-hmm. which is, in a way is, is sort of doubling up on them because here is something that, you know, uh, physically that they can't do and, you know, carries with it all sorts of, unfortunately, stigma and and stress attached to that um and then also being kind of piled on on top of that right right um with oh you're not you're not doing your motherly duty you know and in that case they very much want to in a lot of situations right um okay so before we get into it there's another word we need to define here um autoethnography which is a word i think like a lot of people would stumble over just like I did yeah. saying it. And I do every time I have to read it aloud. Um, so what does that mean? Can you define it for us? Yeah. Autoethnography is a method of doing research that uses um, the personal. So that's auto there. Um, the personal to connect with the cultural. So that's the ethno. Mm-hmm. So writing, writing that is personal and cultural is sort of what we're looking at there. So it's using it's using our, cult- our, our personal stories to sort of connect to those larger cultural conversations that are happening about social issues um, and, and, and seeing the connections culturally in our personal stories. I think a lot about the feminist motto, the personal is political. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's sort of this idea beti- behind autoethnography that our personal stories have cultural and political implications. And I think... One thing we should make kind of clear with that, too, is that research, traditional academic research, is is meant to be very non-personal, yes. right? Like, there's a whole lot about removing yourself um, from the process of the research. Mm-hmm. And so this is really kind of a, a turning on its head, the traditional idea of academic research, right, of putting yourself maybe not – front and center in it, but certainly as an, an important part of it, uh, a lens to yeah. sort of view this through. Absolutely. I think it's just, it's making the ex- implicit explicit, right? Mm-hmm. Because we're, we're always in our research. Sure. Um, no matter how hard we try to, to distance ourselves and to take out all the eyes, we're always a part of that research. So I think autoethnography really starts from that place that says, no, this, this is filtered through me. <laughs> right. Right. Um, and it's going to look different if it's filtered through someone else because of their approach to this topic. So, okay. So now we've got our terminology down. <laughs> and I, I think it's really important with this piece, yeah. um, you know, particularly because that title, like I like the the mother other in there and everything. So I wasn't even, when I was reading over it the first time, I kind of skimmed over it and just missed that and then went back. And I was like, oh, no, no. She, okay, I see what she's doing. Um, <laughs> 
So maybe uh, tell us a little bit about this piece, because I know this is something that you've you've talked about multiple times. Yes. Um, um, and I don't know if this piece is the focus of your dissertation or how much it ties into your dissertation, but it, it seems to be an important piece that you've done so far in your research. Yeah, so this one actually comes out of my master's thesis. Okay. Um, so my master's thesis uh, really, really shaped my my research and my dissertation. Mm-hmm. Um, my master's thesis was an autoethnography about my experience with abortion um, and womanhood and family and all of those sorts of things. So this piece came out of my master's thesis, and it's basically I, I sort of funneled down all of the all of the bits in that in that thesis that really that resonated in in a particular way with me. That after I wrote them, I I couldn't stop thinking about those stories. Mm-hmm. Um, so this this publication is in a special issue of um, a journal called Cultural Studies Critical Methodologies, and it's it was about the um, the theory, the practice, and the style of autoethnography as a research method. Um, so this was um, this was my contribution to that. Um, that really, s- this was really the first time that I that I started experimenting with how do I tell this story mm-hmm. that seems untellable um, because because of all the reasons because because people don't want to hear it um, mm-hmm. because it's not seen as research because it's not seen as uh, appropriate mm-hmm. to, to talk about um, and it's it's interesting this is my first my first publication um, about abortion and when it was published online um, it got picked up by a random weird faction of like alt-right academics in Europe Okay. Uh, they they started tweeting about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so it had a little moment on on Twitter in this in this really particular circle. Um, and I mean, it was one thing after another. This isn't research. How are they passing this off as research? No one cares about this curse words, uh, sexual history, all, all of those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Um, so it. it, it it was it was weird because I feel like I've been so so supported by telling this story in the context of this community here at SIU and the work that I do on the Kleinau stage, and this is my first my first go at like sort of expanding that beyond these circles. Sure. Um, and and I was I was prepared for that sort of response. I knew that that was possible. Mm. Um, but it was kind of a wake up call in a lot of ways that like okay I have to really think about how I'm telling these stories and where they are going. Because once I publish it, I have no control over where it goes. The author is dead. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It takes on a, the art takes on a life of its own. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, <laughs> we, we won't get too much into Bart here. <laughs> um, but yeah, that that's really interesting because you say you're prepared, but you know, also, I have to think that nobody's prepared for going viral in that sort of fashion, right? Like, you can expect to have somebody, I mean, you, you, talking about abortion, you have to expect that there's going to be some negative reaction, yeah. um, right? We just know that from our culture. But to have a group of people on Twitter pick this up and make this their focus for 
a, a day or a week or whatever it was, right? That's got to be sort of a, a weird experience, particularly, you know, you were just, you were just done with your master's at that yeah. point. So you were, um, you know, you were still a very young academic yes. in the grand scheme of things. <laughs> um, how, how was that ex- experience? I mean, how, you know, what was it like in the moment? I mean, obviously now you can kind of look back and laugh a little about it, but in that moment it must've been a little weird. Oh, it was. I remember I was, I was sitting in, I was sitting in my office in the main office here in the, in the comm building when I saw it, because I, I got like my, my alt metric score, which is the, the little number that they put next to publications that shows like how many times it's had impressions on like Twitter or Facebook or those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. It went way up. And I was like, <laughs> what is going on here? So I clicked on it and then I saw this collection of tweets and I was like, who are these people? Some of them were not in English. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had to do some translation and I, I remember like scrolling through and reading it and going, oh my God, this isn't real, is it? And I went, I went out into the main office where some of my colleagues were and I told them what was happening. And it was like, so I, I think some people are picking up my article on Twitter and uh, it's, it's not going so well so far. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and it was just so surreal. I think I was in a little bit of shock. I just remember making a joke about, does this mean I've made it? Um, is this the sort of mark of a, of a feminist activist when, <laughs> when some, some people on Twitter decide that, you know, they're going to, they're going to voice their, their opinions, um, <laughs> in a really harsh, harsh way sometimes. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Um, so I think I was mostly in shock and then, and then afterwards I started reminding myself how many, how many people whose work I respect have had that experience, but worse. Right. And um, folks who were talking about queer issues um, at a time when we academically and as a culture just did not want to talk about that. Mm -hmm. Um, And that sort of, that sense of solidarity was comforting Mm -hmm. in a way that like, okay, folks have been here before and they're still here doing this work. Right. Um, despite despite the risk yeah no I mean that's um, I, I think that fear right of that sort of response is what potentially pushes a lot of academics away from those sorts of topics right yeah. particularly today with social media because yeah. it can be so instantaneous and so overwhelming um, because in a lot of situations it's very organized yeah that sort of response. Obviously, it, it probably was to some degree in that situation. You know, those people were getting it out to people with similar thoughts. Um, All it took was was one account who had, I think he had like 120,000 followers. Mm-hmm. One account tweeting that out to his, you know, his followers. And then that that's all it took. Right. It just took one. So this piece then... Uh, plays into some of the work that you have done on stage as yes. well. So um, I, I believe it ties into the piece that you have coming up this spring. It does. Okay. And so I actually saw a very minor piece. Is that part of your larger piece? I, I, I don't have plans to put that in the, in the, in the other show um, right now. And, and part of, Part of that is because the show that's coming up in the spring 
um, while it's sort of about me and my experience, mm-hmm. um, what I'm really interested in doing with that show is I'm pulling back pieces of shows from our Kleinow archives mm-hmm. that have talked about reproductive politics in some way or another. So when I say that, I mean um, issues of, of parenthood, of sexuality, of family, of um, who is assumed to have children or not have children, um, who gets to be married or not, all of those sort of things, or this idea of reproductive politics. Um, so I'm, I'm going back to our Kleino archives, and I'm actually pulling back pieces from um, Craig English Philbrook from our department, from Elise Pinot, who is a, um, a retired professor from our department, um, lots of other folks. So I'll be pulling some of their work and, and intertwining that with some of the work that I've done um, on abortion specifically to sort of show how these stories are, are really connected. Um, and they've been happening for such a long time. So the, the piece that I did in this last Spotlight Hour, um, I actually wasn't even planning on writing that. It just sort of came out okay. after the SB8 news. So I don't know what its future is yet beyond, beyond that moment on the stage. Yeah, because it was so timely. Um, and I just thought, wow, she was working on this, and then this happened, and this must have been such a... Um, and I, I guess we should tell people what it's about. It's a piece talking sort of about, um, not in any detail, but talking about your experience with abortion mm-hmm. and then tying it into the uh, the Texas law yes. uh, limiting abortion and uh, through multiple different ways. The most obvious that gets most press is the limit at six weeks, mm-hmm. banning abortion after six weeks. Um but I was actually in the audience the night that you performed that, and I remember just thinking, wow, this is, like, such good timing. Like, she must have been thinking about this all summer and following this court case and everything, <laughs> and to hear that you, like, really kind of put it together, at, you know, at the last minute in response to that um, is even kind of more impressive. And so I do want to say here that I did watch that, and it was really great. I was super impressed by it, um, you know, and – Particularly, I think what impressed me is um, I I think that a lot of people, the reaction would be, okay, this is something that gets talked about now. Um, You know, there there are feminists out there who are writing about this, who are talking about this. Um, This gets discussed more often than it used to in movies and and other art. Um, But it's still not it's still not common. It, I mean, not as a topic to discuss, right? Like it's common in that lots of women are, are having this procedure, but like it's not common that we talk about it publicly. And to get up on stage alone, right, not as part of a play, not that you have anybody there sort of shielding you, to get up there and, you know, talk about this very raw emotional experience um, and then to also tie that to something where that experience is being politicized um, and, you know, and certainly being talked about and people are talking about it maybe on your Facebook feed or maybe, you know, next to you in a restaurant with no idea about your personal experience um, is, you know, is really is really a, a courageous act. 
And, you know, I, I know a lot of people would say that that's not courage, <laughs> but it, it, it is because most yeah. people wouldn't do it, right? Uh, most people aren't going to write the piece that goes out on Twitter and gets attacked. But, like, at least there's some distance from you right. in doing that. But putting yourself up on stage leaves very little distance. You know, yeah. I could have thrown my program and hit you from where my seat yep. is how close we were. Um, <laughs> so what is that like? What is it like putting yourself out there in such a raw, uh, vulnerable position and particularly at that time with everything that was going on, on you know, at the national level? Yeah, I think um, it's it's interesting, you know, because I, I follow these these court cases, these this legislation stuff, all the time. I just I have news notifications for for these sort of things. They, like the Google News, yeah, Google News this. alerts for these sorts of things. So like I I'm constantly following following it, but I'm not always like in the in the mode where I feel like I need to I need to sit down and write about it. Mm-hmm. And um, and I woke up to the the news about Texas SB8, which is the the most recent. Um, ban effectively on abortion coming out of Texas. Um, I I knew that what that that had larger ramifications for for Roe v. Wade and the legality of abortion mm-hmm. nationally. Um, and I I I didn't know how else to describe it other than I just needed someone to listen, even if that was just the page. I just needed someone to listen. Mm. Um, I needed. I needed an outlet. I needed someone to feel the emergency, even if that was just me and my my computer screen. I didn't even know I was writing a performance until until about halfway through, and I sort of realized uh, this is the mode that I'm going in. But I I sat down, and it just started coming out of me um, in a way that that sometimes news hits us, and and if we are keen to write, we just want to write it out. Um, so I didn't even know I was writing a performance. And then after I figure that out, I, I decide, okay, I wanted an audience. I'm going to give myself an audience. Mm -hmm. Um, I've done this a few times already now. Um, most of my performances on the Kleinow stage have been about my abortion, Mm -hmm. um, in cast shows and solo, solo pieces, um, so I, I already had a comfort with the space, but there was this extra added layer of I haven't been there in two years. We haven't had live. Perf- this was our first live performance thing in, since 2019. Right. Um, so you've been shut down due to COVID and there's been some recorded performances, but right. nothing live with a live audience. Nothing with a live audience. So so I was I was sort of in the state of constant anxiety of here we are, we're going back and <laughs> I'm just I'm just throwing it all out there. Um, but But I think what sort of, carried me through was that it at the end of the day saying those things felt necessary and I have I have the privilege of access to this stage to be able to say those things right Mm -hmm. um so I I make that decision to take the risk that someone might come up up to me afterwards and say some things someone might leave someone could throw things theoretically I've never seen it happen thank Um, goodness yeah um I, I I walk up to that stage with all of that in mind, but I think what what makes that really possible for me is the community that we've built here that that goes to those Kleinow shows. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I know, you know, there's a, there's a line in that performance where I talk about um, because my procedure happened during the summer, I didn't have to explain to my professors that I would be missing classes and why I would be missing those classes. Sure. Um, and when I say that line, I know that I know that my professors are sitting on the side of the the Klein out because that's where they always sit, <laughs> right? So I I just I can't see them because the lights are are so bright, but mm-hmm. I'm looking at them because I know they're there. And and that sort of every time I step on stage to talk about my abortion, I do um, a sort of like mental checklist of everyone in the audience who I know is supportive of me. Um, I've seen these people here. I know they're here tonight. So I'm just going to, I'm going to give myself that checklist and I'm going to keep running through it. These people will be supportive. If something did happen, they would have my back. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not totally alone. I'm I'm alone on the stage, but I'm not alone in that room. Um, And and part of that comes with the the privilege of of working in this space for the same eight years. Mm -hmm. Um, That, that I know this space, I know this community, I trust this community. That's a big part of it. Um, when I perform at conferences, it's a much different experience because I don't know who's in that room. Right. Right. It's, it could be random people who are like, I don't know what performance studies is. I'm just going to go see what it is. Um, so I, I think that there's something about the Klino that, that really makes me feel, makes me feel like I'm taken care of. Mm-hmm. That even if something were, hap- were to happen, I have a community of folks there who are, who are going to support me through that. Um, and that makes me feel safer. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so kind of going off of that, I mean, obviously this is a topic important to you. And, you know, you are creating this art and doing this research as a means to get out to a larger audience, mm-hmm. right? So given everything that you've done in your um, academic background with communication and everything, how do you think this topic, how do you think is the, uh, what do you think is the effective way to talk about this topic, to talk about abortion? Um, You know, like I I realize even we're sort of like this topic, my, you know, we're using like almost avoiding saying the term in a lot of ways because it's not something that gets talked about um, a lot of times publicly how do you go out and talk to a non-Klinow audience, to a more mixed audience that in a lot of cases may not be as supportive, even if they're not antagonistic, may not be as supportive, um, and and reach them, you know, in a, a, a persuasive way or at least in a way to bring them where they can uh, empathize right. with women who have, who have had abortions? I think that for me, um, the first step is, is to talk about it and talk about it often, right? Um, the more we say the word abortion, the more it feels comfortable to say, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I, I think from that point, the more that I talk about it and the more comfortable I am talking about it, I find that the more comfortable people are talking about it with me mm-hmm. in that if I, if I sort of signal through my body language, through my communication style, that uh, this is a comfortable conversation for me, um, that I'm okay talking about these things, that people will, will sort of reciprocate that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've also found that there's something really, really powerful about standing in front of someone saying, I had this experience, mm-hmm. rather than you know reading about it online or something. Because... Right. 
and this is what's so powerful about performance to me is because those people have to then deal with my humanity. The fact that I'm a person standing in front of them telling mm-hmm. this story, right? And, and that act alone, I think, does a lot to sort of work against the, the sort of monstrous ideal that we have about abortions, right? That, that people who have abortions are murderers. Um, people that, that provide abortions are, are, are murderers. Um, that, you know, it's, it's an issue of morality and sexuality, you know, um, even if, even if they still don't agree with abortion personally, they have to reckon with the fact that I'm a person in front of them. And I think that when I have those conversations and I say, Hey, I had an abortion, these are the reasons I had an abortion, but also reminding folks that um, people who have abortions, more often than not, statistically, already have children. They're already they're already parents. They're already mothers. Um, that abortions happen for lots and lots of reasons, um, medical reasons, personal reasons, financial reasons, um, and that it's it's. I want to get to a place where everyone feels like it's enough for someone to not want a child to have an abortion, right? But until we get to that place, I think that what's been helpful for me, especially especially with my students, right? Um, I'm fairly open about this stuff because they've they've Googled me. They can find that essay. You can search me in the library and find my thesis. They can come to your show. They can come to my show, exactly. Um, Go to a spotlight hour. You'll probably see me talking about abortion. so especially with students, what I found is that um, starting from that place of, okay, well, well tell me what, what you think you know about abortion, mm-hmm. and then we'll go from there, right? Um, because the, I think we have this idea that the person who has an abortion is just, you know, um, a, a woman who is selfish and promiscuous and has no morality and is evil and all of those things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that sort of comes from that discourse of abortion is murder and all that. Um, but be, being able to say, okay, well, most people who have abortions are women. Um, there, are, there are lots of circumstances in which someone would not want to have a child. Mm-hmm. Um, there are lots of circumstances in which someone could not carry a child to term. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I have endometriosis. One of the, the, the side effects or complications with that is that it, it affects fertility right? Um, and affects someone's ability to carry a pregnancy to term. So I, I didn't want a child, but regardless of whether or not I wanted one, that would have affected that decision, right? Sure. Um, if it comes down to my life or the life of a fetus, um, I'm going to choose mine, mm-hmm. right? I think I think most of us would make that decision. Yeah, I, I, you know, <laughs> I think so. And I think that's one of those areas where, you know, when you look statistically, most people actually support Roe v. Wade statistically. Yeah. And I think that's exactly the reason why, right? Like yeah. I always tell students, it's not really a binary decision. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's more on a spectrum. And I said, you know, there's very few people who are completely 100% on one end of the, of the issue or another. Yeah. 
right? Most people find themselves somewhere kind of in the middle or, you know, leaning one direction or another. Um, and so when you talk about something like that, right, like your personal health um, issues, um, which again is like putting yourself in a very vulnerable position, right? Mm-hmm. We all have health issues, yeah. but we all don't necessarily air them publicly. Um, and not even necessarily for privacy reasons or because we're embarrassed. It, it's just not something we talk about and which leads to a lot of the sort of shame associated with uh, reproductive rights, right? Um, you know, one of the things I've noticed with a lot of women my age now on social media, very openly talking about miscarriages. Yeah. Um, and, you know, like maybe not immediately when it happens, but very soon after or even sometimes years after being very open and honest about that, which um, feels like a, a radical shift. It is. Yeah. Um, so when when you talk about this and everything, um, if you were going to if you were going to talk to somebody about reproductive rights. Um, or you actually use the term reproductive justice. Reproductive justice, yes. Okay. Um, so if you're going to talk to somebody about reproductive justice, what are the tools from a communication perspective uh, for doing that? So you've talked about sort of humanizing the issue, right, and attaching a face to it. Um, you know, obviously – and, and I mean this in the most respectful way, you're a very non-intimidating person. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think people are probably that often like scared when they actually meet you. Yeah. Um, you're not the monster maybe they have <laughs> built up in their head. Um, so, you know, if you were to, if you were to counsel people on talking about reproductive justice and, and all the different forms that that takes, um, and maybe we need to define exactly what we mean by reproductive justice, but like, how would you approach, you know, them and say, here's the way to like, maybe communicate this better? Yeah. So I'll, I'll start with reproductive justice first. Cause I think it'll, it, it affects how I, how I talk about it. I use this term very, very intentionally because this is a framework that comes out of black feminists working in the South. Um, and they use it to mean, um, the right to have children. Mm-hmm. the right to not have children, and the right to raise children in safe, healthy, and sustainable communities. Okay. So those sort of three principles is what reproductive justice is, is sort of built around. So um, a lot of my work is in that right to not have children mm-hmm. segment. Um, and, and I use those, those three principles when I'm, when I'm talking to people about abortion because I think that it's, it's important to remember um, one, that access to abortion is, is has, even though it's been legal since Roe v. Wade, has never been equitably accessible. And that um, oftentimes um, black women, brown women, immigrant women, um, disabled women, poor women, they don't have the same choices of whether, of, of, of motherhood or not, right? Mm-hmm. Um, whether it's because they don't have access to abortion or because, um, especially in, in the case of um, disabled folks, um, because abortions are being forced on mm-hmm. someone um, through things like conservatorships, um, that that we, we have to realize that, that all of those things are connected, right? For, so, for instance, um, one of the, the 
implications, the side effects of these abortion bans is actually that it's been criminalizing miscarriages. Mm -hmm. That women who have had miscarriages can then be um, effectively criminalized um, if someone believes that wasn't a miscarriage, that was an abortion. Right. The bounty system, which is insane to even talk about, um, you know, the fact that we're giving these $10,000 plus bounties if you, you know, turn in somebody who's had an abortion. But that is... That requires no proof to yeah. report this person. So this can be a, a woman who was pregnant last week is now not pregnant, mm-hmm. and you just presume, but it could be, as you're saying, this person had a miscarriage, which they understandably might want to keep very private. Right. It's a very private issue. They have no, they're under no obligation to share that publicly with others. But we've now, you know criminalized that or at least we're going to put that woman through this process of of proving and you know and reliving her miscarriage exactly exactly and and you know and and how do you prove something like that right now how do you prove something like that um it's the bounty system is is effectively going to just clog their their court system and <laughs> and we'll see the ramifications of that, but um, but the effects the effects of, of, of legislation like that reach far beyond just the intended targets, mm-hmm. right? Of we're going to shut down abortion providers so no one can get abortions. Well, then we're effectively criminalizing um, nurses, just working their jobs. Right. You know, um, doctors just working their jobs, uh, clinic technicians answering the phones, women who've had miscarriages. Um, the, the effects of that are so much more far-reaching than I think that the original legislatures I- intended it to be. I know one of the things that um, I believe it was The Daily Show was reporting on was that Uber drivers yeah. were now refusing to take women to abortion clinics in Texas because they could be sued yep. as part of that. So and they were they were kind of, you know, it, it's the daily show, so they were kind of taking it to this farcical end, which was that here's this restaurant that's located across the street, which is suddenly getting all these customers who show up to their front door <laughs> but are actually leaving. And, um, walking across the street. But one of the things you talked about was, you know, the – the equitable nature of it. And I know one of the, rep- some of the reporting coming out is clinics as far as way as uh, Colorado and obviously m- more close to Texas, Oklahoma and Louisiana are seeing uh, waiting list essentially of women because all these women are fleeing out of Texas, which is certainly possible if you have the financial means. Yeah to travel to another state and stay overnight and have this procedure. But there's a whole lot of women who can't do that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. We've, we've seen similar things here in Illinois, actually at different points where um, Missouri, Missouri at one point um, tried to criminalize abortion. They, they didn't quite get there yet. Um, And I don't remember which which restriction it was at this point because there have been so many. Mm -hmm. Um, But one of the restrictions went into effect, and Illinois saw a surge of people coming into 
the state for for abortion access. Mm-hmm. Um, but but yeah, the ramifications of that are that you can only get an abortion if you can afford an abortion, and that's that's essentially how it was before before Roe v. Wade. Right. Right. Um, women could get abortions sometimes, sometimes, not always, but if you were connected enough, if you had enough money, um, you could usually find a doctor to perform an abortion somewhere else that you could fly to. Right. Right. Um, um, Gloria Steinem very famously traveled for her abortion mm-hmm. um, before, before it was legal. So we, we, we've always had that history and then Roe v. Wade sort of attempted to, to really alleviate a lot of that. And for a minute it worked. Right. Um, and then the restrictions started coming almost immediately restrictions started coming and with, with more restrictions in terms of, um, even things like hallway widths. Um, there's these things called trap laws, um, targeted, um, regulation of abortion providers. And they would essentially go in and measure the hallways. Right. And if the hallways weren't the right width, you got shut down. Right. So they were using anything possible they could to shut clinics down to the point where now Mississippi has one one clinic. Right. In the whole state. Right. So so people can't access abortions if you're if there's one clinic in the state and it's five hours away. Right. And you know, Mississippi is a very uh, long state. Yes. And so, you know, it's not a it's not a trivial drive from one end of Mississippi to the other. It's very much exactly. like Illinois here, right? It's a very tall state. So if you're at the Gulf Coast and going up to, um, you know, up to the Tennessee border, that that's a huge journey to make for somebody, yeah. particularly somebody who doesn't have a lot of money. Absolutely. And, and even in states where access is fairly good, like Illinois, we have – we we have fairly fairly good abortion um, legislation here in Illinois, uh, fairly fairly progressive, fairly protective of that right, mm-hmm. um, and even here still, um, the closest clinic to Carbondale is over an hour away in Granite City, um, and an hour is a lot different than like a full day's drive or multiple states or things like that. But sure. but still, if you've got to take time off from work, and you've got to make that drive, what if you don't have a car? Right. So then you're dependent on, can I find someone to drive me there? Or can I afford a Lyft or an, or an Uber to, to get there um, and back? And all, all of those things are, are meant to inhi- in, inhibit the, the access to abortion. Those states are, are actively trying to make it harder for people to have abortions. Right. Um. I, I do want to uh, I do want to plug your show that is coming up yeah. um, here real quick. So it's titled Reproductions. It's going to be March twenty fourth through the twenty sixth. Um, so this coming March, um, and are those show is that a free production or that tickets sold for that? Tickets will be sold for that. Um, it is five dollars the student ID, seven for the general um, public, and that is cash. And um, and we are. Crossing our fingers that we are still going to be able to have it live in person. <laughs> right. Um, so there are COVID restrictions we should state for the Klein Al shows this entire year um, have been requiring masks and everything yes. from audience members. Yes. Um, I did want to touch on real quick before we finish up here, because we're just about out of time. Um, you did do another show, your last show that you were actually talking about that was uh, streamed online on YouTube which was called The Muses Are Calling. Um, yeah. Do you want to t- 
tell us a little bit about that show? Yeah, that was um, that was a devised show, which means that the cast members actually wrote the script with me and alongside me. Um, and we we sort of took this idea of um, of domestic labor mm-hmm. um, and what reproductive justice advocates would call reproductive labor, the the work that we do to keep a society moving. Right. right, like raising children, taking care of, of the aging, cooking meals, those sorts of things. Um, and what we did is we looked at that relationship to art. So how does, how does that domestic labor, um, what we call women's work in our culture, mm-hmm. um, how has that affected artwork? So we, we talked about our own personal experiences with that, um, some historical examples of, um, of male artists who have... Um, been violent towards women but are still celebrated and also some women artists that we don't celebrate as much mm-hmm. um so it's it's about an hour long um devised show so there are our poetry and stories and um, movement sequences and um there's a bathtub scene <laughs> <laughs> all all in all in less than an hour all right um well uh Final question here. Um, so something that I've been asking all of our guests, uh, what is, since we are talking about communication, right? And the most common way I think that people think of communication is through media often, yeah. right? It's what you're watching. It's what you're reading. It's what you're listening to. It's what you're playing. Um, so what have you been doing lately that you would want to like talk about? So I'm a TV junkie. I love watching good TV shows. I've watched so much TV during the pandemic. And I'm going <laughs> to take this opportunity to, pl- to plug the other two and Hacks on okay. HBO. They are like the funniest shows I've seen in so long. Also what we do in the shadows. Um, <laughs> I'm a big fan of the like 30 minute comedy. The right. other two is perhaps the funniest show I've seen in like the last 10 years. Now the other two is a, about the one, the one brother is a pop star and yeah. it's about his other two siblings. It's about his other two siblings. It's got Molly Shannon in it, Helen York, um, oh gosh, uh, Drew Tarver, um, and the 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 little brother sort of rises to fame and we see that happening and then we we really follow the stories of the other two siblings. Mm-hmm. The funniest show on television, hands down. And that's really interesting because I actually uh, listened to an interview uh, with the creators of that show and they were talking about how that show really ended up getting saved. It was like almost canceled um, and, you know, because it hit right during the pandemic and it didn't really find its audience originally and and now has kind of been saved out of this and everything, um, which is, you know, one of those great stories when there's the show that has found a small audience, but like a very, um, you know, excited audience yeah, for it. Passionate audience. Yeah. Right. It was renewed for season three on my birthday the other day. So, Oh, wow. Happy birthday to me from HBO. <laughs> <laughs> and then Hacks is also an HBO show. Hacks is also on HBO. That has Jean Smart, um, who plays sort of an aging woman comic. I'm actually wearing a t-shirt with her character on it right now. Oh, I didn't even um, recognize what yeah, that was. It's Jean Smart and her character Deborah Vance. Um, she plays an aging comic who has this show in Las Vegas and this younger sort of feminist comic comes to write for her. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really about their relationship and their dynamic. Um, and is just so, it's so funny and smart and heartwarming 
mm-hmm. um, to see the the relationship that these two women have over the course of this this one season uh, that we have so far. Um, but I I'm I'm a big Jean Smart stan. I love her. Mm-hmm. I'll watch anything Jean Smart does. Yeah, and you know also that show I um, I read that her husband died while they were doing that first yeah. season, and they thought the show was over. Um, understandably and she came back you know like a week later and went back to work and um, you know really you know like saved the show but also saved a lot of people's jobs and everything and you know I I can't imagine that experience from her perspective yeah me neither and and she did some of the most beautiful work of her career Mm -hmm. Um, also there's there's one scene where she plays her own wax figure (laughs) <laughs> which is just like I mind blown. Yeah, yeah she's uh, quite the uh, amazing actress, isn't she? Oh yeah, absolutely. All right, well, uh, we're just about out of time, and I know you have uh, some things to get to and everything. So I do want to thank you for taking some time out and talking to us and everything. And obviously, people can check out your shows and everything. Um, is there somewhere online, social media, or a website or something if people want to like? find out more about you or your work that they can go? I have an Academia EDU page, but it's not very um, active. Okay. Um, so I will say if, if folks are interested in learning more about performance studies or um, reproductive justice or wants to talk about abortion things, um, my information is on the SIU website, the, mm-hmm. the Com Studies webpage of graduate assistance. My email is there, so okay. feel free to reach out. All right. And if you have any questions or comments about the show, you can uh, reach out to me. My email address is justin.young at siu.edu. And we really thank you for listening. And we'll be back soon with another guest um, and continue talking about communication. Thanks for tuning in, everyone.